Welcome to episode 99F of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. Are you enjoying the slow, asymptotic march towards 100? I think we know when it's going to happen, roughly. Yeah. But I'm enjoying stalling. I don't mind it. I mean, if anything, there's kind of like a, I feel less pressure. Like, I felt like, you know, once before we kind of instituted the A, B, C, D, E, F thing... I felt like, oh my gosh, number 100's coming, and you felt like you were going to have to shoehorn something into that episode just to make it work because it was number 100, but mm-hmm. I feel like this is so much more our style. It's NCR style, which is <laughs> that like when it's ready, it's coming, you guys, Like, but we, need, we, we have enough pride in our product to make sure that it's the way that we want it to be before we, uh, we unleash the beast, so to speak. So, um, But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think we can officially say, though, that 100 will be in April? Yes. Yes, it'll be in April. For sure. Okay. So there you go. There's your announcement. 100 will be in April. So we probably won't get beyond, like, at worst, like, 99 I or J or so. So it's not going to go all the way to Z, but we got a couple more left. Probably. One day. Maybe one, one day. When we do, like, 199, we should just start with whatever the next letter is <laughs> that we leave off. It shouldn't be 199A. It should be, like, 199K. Okay, that works. <laughs> that's that's a long way in the future. It but... is a long way in the future. I would be, I would be amazed if we hit two hundred. I have to say. I know. I'm, I'm amazed that we're going to hit one hundred. I know. It's weird. Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? But on this show, the 99F, we're going to talk about a lot of players who haven't done as well as to hit hundred episodes theoretically this season, uh, who are struggling. That includes people like Sharapova recently, Nadal, uh, Ivanovich, Radvanska, Wozniacki, Bouchard, Kerber, etc. Uh, we're also going to talk about the general issues with the Miami tournament, and we're going to take a bunch of listener questions because we like those. You ready to give people what they want, Courtney? Let's go. Let's start with Maria Sharapova, who lost in her first match in Miami after losing in the fourth round of Indian Wells. After a big win in Indian Wells over Azarenka, she lost to Panetta in, in three sets, and then she comes to Miami with some strapping on her upper left thigh, which she doesn't, you don't usually see that from Sharapova anywhere. And she loses uh, in straight sets to Daria Gavrilova. What do you, what do you make of that loss, Courtney? Cause I don't think it's one people saw coming. It was a big win for Gavrilova, but not a typical Sharapova performance at all. Yeah. I mean, I, she looked injured to me. I mean, I, I, by my eye, she looked definitely slow in and out of the corners. Her footwork was very, very heavy. And yeah, so that was a little disconcerting. And, and the way that she played those two sets against Gavrilova mirrored a lot how she played that final set against Panetta out in Indian Wells. Lots of airs, very flat in her hitting, going for far too much. And, and when you see a player, especially a player like Maria Sharapova, engage in that type of game plan to the extent that's a plan, it usually is an indication that the confidence in, in the fitness and in the legs um, isn't there. So I think I, I said this on Twitter. I think that the loss to Gavrilova in a lot of ways could be a blessing in disguise. It gives her, you know, two weeks effectively to uh, to rest, to get ready for clay, where she has a, a significant amount of points to defend. She's also making that long trip to Sochi for Fed Cup. 
So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a br- pretty brutal next couple of months for Sharapova. So if that meant that, an, I don't know, I think that that mitigates an early loss. I, I've, I've been disappointed with the three sets of tennis I've seen her play, two against Gavrilova and the last against Panetta. But uh, if she can get herself healthy, I, I, it's not really a massive concern for me at the moment, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. It's all about how serious that injury is. Because like I said, the tape, you don't see that on Sharapova right. almost ever. The sort of preventative or treatment tape, whatever it may be. It's very rare from her. So for her to have that showed some immediate alarms before the match started going against her. And then once it did, it sort of was like, oh, okay, this makes some sense. Taking nothing away from Gavrilova, who played really well. And was very, very feisty and rose to the occasion well. Clearly likes the big stage um, and got up for that match. It was, uh, though for Sharapova, like you said, I'm just going to repeat what you said because you said it all correctly, Clay is huge for her. I mean, she is becoming, statistically, more and more of a surface-dominant player, although she did have a big Australia swing this year. Um, so she needs to be at her best. She got she won the titles in Stuttgart and Madrid and French Open last year, so it's a lot, a lot of points to defend. And if she wants to keep herself up in that top three, she needs to have a, another big year there, presumably. At least top two. Halep's right on her heels there. Yeah, I mean, Halep is, is just kind of tearing through and putting a lot of pressure on that. And, and and again, when you start to look at the French Open, that race for number two between Sharapova and Halep is massive. I mean, we're talking about the difference between potentially playing Serena Williams in the semifinals or playing her in the final uh, right. once you get to Paris. So that that's, an, that's a massive race to keep an eye on as uh, as we turn the corner. And, and you're right. I mean, Sharapova with a lot of points to defend. I don't know. It's tough. Although, much like I think I said last week about Halep, it's a big credit to Maria Sharapova that knowing that this massive amount of points was uh, is coming on the clay, I mean, I think that what she did in Australia does lessen, you know, the pressure going into that portion of the season. But Halep's, Halep's right there. I mean, she's, uh, I mean, if she has a good run in Miami, she, well, I mean, she can win the title if she wins Miami. Or not win the title, sorry. She could move to number two if she wins Miami, Simona Halep. So we're going to see. Let's talk about the other top woman while we're here, Serena. Some question marks about her knee and her health and everything in general after Indian Wells uh, with her pullout there. She looks sharp. Nick Leska match was, again, <laughs> excruciating, but more straightforward this time and looked very good against Bellis and Kuznetsova. So you think things are back on track for Serena? Yeah, I think so. I think the match against Kuznetsova was the most encouraging out of all of the matches that she's played uh, in the North American hardcourt swing. So, yeah, I think I think she's back online and her draw looks pretty snazzy. So she should be she should be okay. I mean, seven time champion in Miami. That's just ridiculous. That's Nadal-esque. It is. You don't see those numbers from many people. Let's talk about Rafa, segue. Smooth segue there, I must say. Congratulations, Ben. Um, totally you... ruined your own segue. It was impressive. I know. Thank you. Uh, Rafa loses to Fernando Verasco, which doesn't happen, except for on blue clay, historically. These two play some really bad matches against each other, except for that epic in 2009 in Australia. This was a discouraging performance from Rafa, and his comments and press afterwards were really interesting about saying he just doesn't have the relaxation and I guess the confidence, for lack of a better word, on court right now to play his best. And you could see that with the lack of belief, with the tentative shots in the middle of the court and for just letting Verdasco, who's a big hitter, giving him time to tee up his shots because Nadal was putting not much pressure on him. 
it has not been a good start to 2015 for Rafa, losing early to Daniel Brandt, uh, not Daniel Brandt, to um, Michael Berrer in Doha, losing, getting bagel by Burditch in a straight sets loss in Australia, uh, not doing, not winning Rio, winning a kind of nothing title in Buenos Aires, and then losing to Ronich and now Verdasco. Uh, Courtney, you've been saying repeatedly about not hitting the panic button on Rafa per se. Uh, what is this latest? match due to that perspective and I guess his his mindset that he shared afterwards because he seemed uh, remarkably forthright about it all yeah I, I don't think you hit the panic button again I, I really am not all that worried about Rafael Nadal I, I don't know why everybody's even the way that you described his 2015 year already like I kind of was like uh, this is way more negative than I kind of see it I think that Coming out of Australia and the Middle East to start the season, the biggest concern for me surrounding Rafael Nadal was his fitness issues. I mean, the fact, you know, he played that weird match against Tim Smicek where physically he just didn't look that great. And again, that sort of lack of energy showed up again in his loss to, to Tomas Berdik. And then down in Rio, playing against, uh, losing to Fonini, had a tough turnaround having finished that other match like three or two in the morning something like that um and turning around and having to play again and again he said i didn't have the energy in north america though in this two losses to Raonic and to verdasco those fitness issues were not a concern which i think is incredible positive i think that that's massive secondly i think that he had three match points against milos Raonic. the only one that really he duffed was that second serve return like he came pretty close to, to closing that one out. And then who knows what we're talking about. If he then plays Roger potentially beats Roger. I mean, you know, you just never know. And then with this match against Verdasco, totally agree. Terrible third set he played against Fernando. But again, what he's saying in press, I really do believe him. It, it's, it's just a confidence issue and the confidence will come, especially as he's now about to hit clay what was more, like I said, what was more worrying to me was when he just still felt like he wasn't playing tennis the right way. He didn't have the energy. He didn't have the right attitude. That's when I'm a little bit more worried about Rafa when he gets negative. But he sounds like he's in a good headspace. And so as we turn to Clay and as we head to Monte Carlo for the ATP, I'm not concerned about Rafa. And I refuse to be concerned about him until depending on what happens uh, at the French Open. Okay, for me, I'm I'm putting. I don't know if it's a panic button. I'm not sure what that means exactly in in numbers terms. But I would say, as of right now, I would sell Rafa in terms of if his current ranking is three this week. He's going to go down to four already. But let's say three or four. I think he would end 2015 below that. And so on that level, I just think that he's not trending in the right direction. And other guys who are just below him, meaning. Nishikori and Ronich are moving up steadily. Th- and Rafa has a lot of points to defend on clay. He made one Madrid, won the French, and made finals of Rome. Right, and he has absolutely nothing to defend after it. Like, I don't see how... how I, I just don't see the logic there at all of thinking that right now, as of right now, based off of three months of results, that you think Rafa's going to finish outside of the top three. I don't see that. That, that. The logic there doesn't work for me. He has nothing to defend after the French Open. He's got the hard courts. He has the fall, and he could still, because we've seen this before, tear through clay. He actually can gain points on clay this year, which he you couldn't necessarily say in years he past. He has to do a lot to gain points on clay, though. Barcelona, Monte Carlo, Rome, 
You have to be like vintage, vintage Rafa in order to gain points on Clay. Like talking which about like she's... sweeping the whole thing. Yeah, which I don't see seen... that. I don't see that happening. Okay, I just, I just don't. I just that to me screams more gut, gut instinct than, like, I, I just don't see the backup for that conclusion personally. Okay, I mean, right now he's number nine in the race. He's not trending the right way. He's lost to people he doesn't usually lose to. I, it doesn't inspire confidence at all. Now, granted, he's not someone to bet against, you know. I'm not going to say, oh, he's never winning a slam again or he's on the downhill. We got questions about that from listeners that were fairly blunt about that. People saying, uh, for example, Game Set tweets asking, is this the beginning of the end for Rafa? Which I would say that seems a bit apocalyptic and drastic. But at the same time, I do think that he is on a significant downward trend this year. And talk about the fall. He's never played well in the fall. It's never been a good time of year for him. So I, unless he has, unless he replicates his peaks on clay and hard courts, he's going to slide. And I don't see him doing that this year. Disagree. All right. There we go. Let's talk about some people who are sliding on the women's side as well. There's a bunch of players who were in Singapore as alternates or main draw players who have had pretty rough starts 2015, namely Caroline Wozniacki, Anna Ivanovic, Jeannie Bouchard, Agnieszka Radwanska, and Angelique Kerber, who was the first alternate for Singapore. Let's let's start with Kerber. We got a question from Caro's Wrist, who asks us, Kerber is done, isn't she? And why does no one seem to care? That was a dark question. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> why does no one seem to care? Well, here's the flip side of the question. Did people care when she was a top 10 player? I mean, no disrespect to Angelique Kerber. She was, I mean, a quality top 10 player for, for three years and, you know, pretty reliable with respect to getting to quarterfinals, you know, every once in a while scoring a, a pretty good win. Um, but for the most part, never really got it done against the game's elite. So she was kind of in that middle section of, you know, the tier below the top players. Very nice young woman, not exactly lighting up the uh, the personality uh, power rankings. I think that's a fair thing to say. Yeah, she um, wasn't like super high on showmanship or right. charisma, I guess. Yeah, but like the game at times could be fun to watch. Oh yeah. But yeah, I mean, I don't really see that her slide is. I think that in a lot of ways, for the last three years, a lot of people. I think myself, if I'd probably include myself in this group of people, thought that Kerber was outperforming. Her, yeah, overachieving for sure. Yeah, overachieving massively. So now that she's slipped, so that was the story in a lot of ways. Was like, wow, how in the world is Angelique Kerber doing this? How is she playing like this, nonstop, not getting tired, like racking up pretty good results? But now that she's slipping, I feel like in a lot of ways it's just the re- an expected regression. Like she's she's regressing back to where I thought maybe she'd be, which is a, a top twenty player, um, but not necessarily a consistent top seven which uh, she effectively has been. So, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that her um, slump uh, is enough to raise like panic buttons or red flags. I would say the same thing about Irani. I think they're in very similar categories. I mean, they both made Istanbul uh, the two years I was there, uh, 2013, 2012 and 2013. um, And both were sort of similar models of players. I mean, obviously Ronnie had a lot less power and aggression than Kerber, but both of them were like, wow, how are you able to sustain this? How are you with your game? A consistently top eight player didn't compute on some level. 
and they're both slipping now. And I think they're both probably more for me, like in the 11 to 15 range than lower part of top 20, which is where they're sort of both sitting now. I think, especially once they get on clay, Ronnie will do well. Although she has talked about points to defend. She's defending a Rome final, which is tough. Yeah, I mean, with these players, it, it was more about their past results being remarkable than it is about their current results being disillusioning on some level, I guess. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, let's talk about some of the other people who are in that sort of category. We got a question from Ahmad RF who asks us, the mystery of Lady Aga. What's up with her? And why <laughs> does her partnership with Martina not seem to work so far? With Radvanska, who's had another, I think, by all accounts, mediocre start to the year, outside of Hopman Cup, where she played great. Um, is it fair to pin much of this on Navratilova? That was obviously a very sizzly partnership at the beginning of the year. Um, Navratilova would have gotten credit if Ravonska had won the Australian Open, for example, uh, for sure, from the media at least. So is it fair to blame Navratilova for what has been a very underwhelming three months? Well, it's not like Aga was lighting it up last fall either. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, it, this is this is a slump that has been, um, that she's been mired in since uh, winning Montreal. She really hasn't done much to back up that result. Um, losses uh, since then to, let's see, Caroline Wozniacki, Pong Shuai, Varvara Lepchenko in Seoul, Caroline Garcia in the opening round in Wuhan, Roberta Vinci in Beijing. And then uh, she did well at the, to make the semifinals at the WTA finals. But so this has been going on for a while. So I, I, to me, when I look at it that way, I'm like, no, this is not a Martina issue. Now, like whether or not Martina has helped pull her out of that slump, I think that we can, at least so far, based on the results, say no. Um, no. But that being said, again, just adding some context here, here are the players that Aga's lost to since the start of the year. Muguruza twice. We know how good Garbine Muguruza is. Venus Williams, uh, twice. We know how good Venus is. Sharapova at Fed Cup. The only really bad, bad, bad loss here is to Heather Watson last week in Indian Wells. And then obviously today, Carlos Juarez Navarro um, was not great. But I mean, when you look at the quality of the losses, I think that you do have to take into consideration a little bit um, that she's losing to quality opposition. Um, for the most part, until North America. But I think that it's also hard to ignore that she is very much not playing Radvanska tennis. They're pretty good quality losses up until the last couple of weeks, but she's not playing the type of tennis that we're used to seeing her play. She's looking really kind of stressed on court. Um, not that Radvanska is a big, bubbly, smiley person on court, but there there's a tension in her game right now. Um, if you, she was always calm at least. Yeah, exactly. She's always been pretty calm, good poker face, but yeah. So that, that aspect of things is, is more worrisome is just the fact that she just doesn't seem to be playing the way that she wants to play. Now that's a lot of that is the work that she's doing with Martina, the work she's doing with Vitkarovsky as well. Um, and those changes, as we know, don't happen overnight and it, these things do take time. Um, but the problem is that I don't see – it's one thing if, like, Aga was, like, losing matches because she was trying to hit, like, 120-mile-an-hour serves and double-faulting, like, 20 times a match. Like, at least in that situation, you're like, oh, I see what you're trying to do in terms of what you're adding to in your game. Like, Lee Na when she started volleying more and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But that's not it. She's just playing terribly. You, I, I don't see, like, where she's 
altering her game in any way to improve it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's not positive for her whatsoever. I I agree with Bradmonsky. I mean, clay has never been her best service either. So it's not a a service on which you expect for her to build confidence either. She's going to need to play really well on the grass. Probably. I'm guessing if I had to guess, she'll probably enter both Birmingham and Eastbourne, try to get some points back. Uh, Cause they're both premier events this year. And there's a you know, three-week grass season lead-up. But yeah, right now she's definitely training the wrong way. And with Navratilova, it wasn't an obvious match when it happened in terms of styles of play or in terms of personalities. Uh, maybe it's not the right match. Like you said, it hasn't reflected well on it so far. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes and what exactly Navratilova is telling her to do that is or isn't working or that she's listening to or not. Um, but overall, definitely not a hasn't had the immediate success that we would say of for example, like the early returns from Davenport Keys in Australia. Right. Which I do think you could attribute. I think rightly a lot of that was credited to Lindsay, the sort of calm with which Madison went through that tournament. Yeah. It was not something we'd seen for her before. No, and also the the, the improved fitness, I think, from Madison mm-hmm. as well, spending that off season with them. So, yeah, I think that Lindsay got a good amount of – I think it was justified, the credit. But, like, blaming Martina for uh, – Redvanska right now is kind of like blaming Amelie for Andy for those three months, like from Wimbledon through the U.S. Open kind of thing. It's like, you know, he was kind of sucking before. He's coming off of, like, the back injury. Like, it's going to take time. It's kind of the same thing with Aga. Like, if she finished last year, like, on a super crazy high like Caroline Wozniacki and then completely slumped, then you're like, okay, I can see a little bit more cause and effect there. But, like, I don't know. I mean, it's been going on for a while now. Let's talk about Wozniacki. You brought her up there. We got a question about Caroline, or that mentioned the two previous, and uh, also Caroline, from Sam Gold, who asks us, are Aga, Caro, and Kerber's time in top 10 running out? Puffball tennis has not had a great season so far. Um, on Caroline, I will say she is in position to qualify for Singapore if it ended now, the race. Uh, she's in eighth, so her season hasn't been apocalyptic, but it has not been good either by any stretch, and these repeat losses to Venus that she suffered, especially this one. Like you said on Twitter, according, I don't understand why this matchup isn't good for her. I don't get it. Yeah. Why she's 0-7 against Venus, having never really played Venus in her prime. It's not like somebody who, you know, Venus racked up wins against early on. Yeah. Most of these losses have been, or a lot of them have been, when Wozniacki was higher ranked than Venus. I mean, she's won one set off Venus yeah. in seven matches. I mean, that is that is a pigeon matchup if there ever was one currently on the WTA and yeah it makes no sense I mean with Caroline it's hard you know I think that she suffers we'll talk about Eugenie Bouchard in a little bit but I think that she's suffering a little bit from the same thing that Jeannie is which is that I think the expectations were much higher for her as she started the 2015 season and so her season hasn't been poor it's just been not meeting the expectations now there's good there's the questions as to whether or not those expectations were fair i think that's a fair question i think that they were fair given the way that she finished 2014 i think she was she was amazing yeah she was playing great tennis at the end of 2014 but i mean like on the metrics caroline's year hasn't been bad right starts the season makes the final in auckland um loses to victoria azarenka at the australian open in the second round rough draw retired from sydney because of the the knee injury semifinals of dubai not a terrible run there losing in three to halep 
quarterfinals of Doha loses to Azarenka again, wins Kuala Lumpur, beating no one in the top 80. <laughs> um, and then yeah. a, a, a third round loss to Benchich last week in Indian Wells. And then now again here in uh, to Venus for the third time this year. So it's that's not bad. I mean, you're talking about a title. You're talking about a premier semi. You're talking about an Auckland final. Okay. But I think we expected so much more from Caroline Wozniacki. And as she is pretty much kind of irrelevant on clay and grass, she really needed to put her foot down in the first three months of the season. And, and she really didn't. Yeah, make a bigger move than she did for sure. And like you said, it hasn't been bad, but it hasn't been what it, we expected at all. And a lot of people, I've gotten a lot of messages from people and conversations on tour, not in the Wozniacki camp, obviously, who are sort of side-eyeing her whole offseason in preparation to the year and the decision to play Kuala Lumpur, which is essentially only for presumably a pretty massive appearance fee check, which is right for the week before Indian Wells and Miami, which are much bigger tournaments for points. Uh time mismanagement with all the off-season stuff she was doing. Marathon is one thing, but also you know, swimsuit issue, the Vogue thing, the whatever else she was doing. She's done a lot of stuff that didn't necessarily put her in the best position for 2015 to really sustain that momentum. And I do think that she did fail to sustain it. I mean, she did drop the ball that she was she carrying very fast. Because let's remember, that match in Singapore against Serena was incredible. Was that incredible. was the best I've ever seen her play. And just and, and and just her form. Like, let's not forget, Caroline Wozniacki was in the U.S. Open final, you guys. Yeah. Like, let's not forget that that, that run happened. That win she had over Sharapova, phenomenal um, in New York. Like, she, but the key for Caroline was that she seemed to be in 2000, at the second half of 2014, turning the corner away from being a player that you kind of thought, ah, she wins matches because she gets the ball back tons and everybody misses, right? She's a player that nobody can beat, like a lot of people can't beat, and that's why she wins matches. But she seemed to be turning the corner to being a player who wins matches. She's proactive. Yeah, who steps into the court, who hits the forehand, who takes the ball early, who was trying to serve bigger. I mean, it felt like everything was in place to really launch her into 2015. I mean... She was definitely on my short list to start the season as being a, a, a title contender in Melbourne. But the problem is, and this is, again, kind of going back to Radvanska, the problem for Wozniacki is that she's not playing the type of tennis that got her into the conversation. She's reverted. And that's what I think is so disappointing. So I think that combined with the expectations just really um, magnifies the like where her season has fallen short, you know, because it's like it's not even like she's playing you know, this this new Caroline 2.0 style tennis and losing yeah. because she doesn't have her range. She's just back to retrieving. And I think that's what's what's really disappointing. It's always tough for those players who don't have who aren't, for lack of a better word, ball bashers who have to have a more subtle game plan, have to find a balance. Right. And it's always going to be harder for them. It's not like riding a bike as much for them. They have to really figure that balance out and sustain it. And I do think that the offseason came at the worst possible time for Caroline. I mean, if Australian Open had been the week after Singapore, she very well may have won it. Yeah. And it didn't happen that way. No, it's it, not how the season works. Unfortunately. But, um, but and, I mean, it should be pointed out as well that she has not been 100% fit this year. Um, she had a knee injury, wrist injury. There's just been, she's been battling a bunch of things. That's why, again, so surprised that she'd made that trip to Kuala Lumpur after basically telling everybody in the Middle East that, like, she was playing injured. Um, and then you hop on a plane and fly to Kuala Lumpur before two of the biggest tournaments. 
That's nuts. I don't know. Yeah. It's nuts. Not smart. That, that's, a, that's a money over tennis decision. Yeah. Let's talk about Jeannie Bouchard next, who lost for the second straight match to a qualifier. Uh, she lost to Tatiana Maria, uh, nay Malik. She'll always be having, Malik. It's also confusing having someone's last name be a common first name. Exactly. That's why I never made – I would, like, type out Maria, and I was like, no, not Sharapova. And I was like, oh, screw it. I'm going with the maiden name. I wish she'd gone hyphen. Mm, I really wish. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Tatiana Malik hyphen Maria, in my mind, uh, beat Jeannie Bouchard in a non-televised match, bageled her in the first, beat her in a tiebreak in the second after Jeannie had led for most of the second set. Uh, Jeannie is not doing great, Courtney, since her Australian Open quarterfinal. But as you pointed out before we came on air, uh, this is not that dissimilar to what she did last year in this time of year. So would you say that Jeannie is slumping or tough to tell? It's tough to tell simply because, yeah, how do you define a slump? Like if a, if if par is par and you go back on the course and you make par and then you go out the next day and make par again, like, didn't you just do the same thing you did the day before? Yeah. You know, and, and if you actually do go back and you compare the results um, in 2014, this is what Eugenie Bouchard did in the first three months of the season. She started the season first round loss in Sydney, then makes the semifinals of the Australian Open, plays Fed Cup, earns two wins, goes winless in the Middle East in main draw play, quarterfinals of Acapulco, uh, third, no, sorry, fourth round in Indian Wells, and then an opening second round loss to Alina Svitolina in Miami. That's really not far off of what she's done this year, except this year she hasn't played as much. So she played Hopman Cup instead of going back to Sydney. Um, and then she made the quarterfinals of the Australian Open this year. So just one win away from replicating her Australian Open result last year. Lost to a very hot Sharapova. Exactly. Um, Skipped Fed Cup, so she didn't play Fed Cup. There's no ranking points there anyway. She skipped the entire Middle East swing, So, but she went winless last year, so whatever. Um, this And then last year she played Acapulco, made the quarterfinals. This year she went to Antwerp, lost in her opening round match, right? Yeah. To Van Oit Bank? Or not Van Oit Bank. Brengel. Brengel. No, not to no. Brengel. Sorry, to, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Bartle. Oh, yes, Bartle. Exactly. And then... Fourth round of Indian Wells last year. Fourth round of Indian Wells this year. Second round loss last year in Miami. Second round loss this year. So really we're talking about one match that she didn't kind of win. Otherwise she would have matched results. So it's hard to say. Is Jeannie in a slump? I would argue that she is, again, just by eyeball test. Because when you watch her play right now, there's a lot going on. And it, it, it doesn't look good, you know, um, uh, but she has last she last year. She did what we saw with Sloan Stevens the year before, which is played great at the majors, pretty much disappeared outside of them other than winning uh, Nuremberg and making the final in Wuhan. Um, and so this is kind of normal for her. So is it panic mode yet? Not necessarily. Again, it might be outsized expectation, which just magnifies, you know, her coming up short at these non-slam tournaments. It, I think she it was probably fair to say she was in a slump this time last year, too. But she's following the same patterns, more or less. And remember, last year, she didn't break into the top 10 until after making the Wimbledon final. Right. So as much as people talk about her ascendancy last year, it was really more at the middle of the year, making the French a winning Nuremberg making the French semis and then the Wimbledon final that she really made her big push in the rankings. 
Um, so that hasn't come up yet. Obviously, it doesn't help her. Like Halep, for example, has done a lot to give herself a rankings cushion by winning India Wells. Jeannie has not given herself a cushion right. in the rankings. In the race right now, she's 27. So that's not great. She's behind Sybil Kova. Whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, whoa. <laughs> and and only, only one spot ahead of Gavrilova. Yeah, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that Jeannie hasn't played. She's only in Miami was just her fifth tournament of the season. The season's been three months long now. So, um, yeah, she hasn't played a ton, although Hotman Cup, if you count it, that's six events, I suppose. But, um, yeah, but there's a lot kind of going on with her. She's still obviously very, very young. She's adjusting to a new coach. I think she's dealt with more fitness issues this year than she wants to maybe lead on. Um, had that. Ep- yeah, she she is, does not talk about injuries. Yeah, she's very very firm on that. Yeah, so which is frustrating for us, not because we want to be like, hey, you're injured, but it was like, you know, we I don't want to say the genie's in a slump if like her foot's broken, like you know what I mean? Like it's like sure. just tell us, and then that gives context to what's happening. But if you don't, if no one wants to say anything, then it becomes very frustrating. But but she did take a wild card in Charleston next week. So but we'll see her there. We'll see her there. We'll get to chat with her and hopefully get um, some insight into where her mind is at as she does turn to what is the most pressure packed next probably four months of her season. We'll talk more about chatting with Jeannie later in the show. But uh, in the meantime, Dr. Scholes has a question for us. Is there a two year curse on 19 year old Australian Open semifinalists? He asks. And it does seem like it's not. Early on, Jeannie's not following a totally dissimilar pattern from Sloan, who does seem to be pulling out of her sophomore slump right now. Sloan does. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. I, I just don't think that there's a lot to panic about. I mean, even if you want to talk about Sloan, you can even go back to talking about, I mean, it wasn't as big of a splash, but like what Laura Robson did before Sloan. I mean, she had breakout wins here and there and was able to you know pull together fourth round major results things like that and then obviously injury and things and then sloan was the next one and then genie's the next one and then now madison's the next one i'm sure belinda benchich will make the australian open semifinals next year um it's gonna be it's gonna be like benchich or taylor townsend by the map right exactly so and then anna Kanye will do it you know it's Mm -hmm. all there so there's nothing as sloan as you rightfully said ben she does seem to be pulling out of it i mean you know she's playing she's playing good tennis again and so for bouchard i don't know on some level maybe just everything just needs to cool off you know i mean she's had a lot of off-season changes and coaches and agency and there's just a lot of stuff going on in camp bouchard these days that it probably is really hard to focus on tennis. Yeah. So there you go. The last slumping lady who we're going to talk about, uh, potentially slumping lady is Anna Ivanovich, who had a great finish to 20, a great 2014 in total, um, finishing top five for the first time in quite a long time. And then started out 2015 really well, making the Brisbane final, playing a tough final against Sharapova in defeat. And then after that, she has been pretty much AWOL. Uh, losing first round of the Aussie Open to Radechka, who played, Radechka played well, but that's not a match Ivanovic should be losing. And then since then, just more and more losses. And this week, she took a loss to Lasicki. Uh, yeah, Courtney, what do you make of, of Anna's rise and current slide? I just don't know why she's playing on a, on an injured foot. I think that 
that's a big question that I have. And I haven't spoken with Anna, I think, since the Australian Open. So, um, but that will be the next time I see her, that'll be the first thing I want to know is how, why are you playing on an injured foot? And, and um, it clearly hampers her movement against Lasicki. You could see that there were times where she was limping. So that's a little bit worrisome and it affects her play. It affects her emotional state during these matches. She's been very emotional and, and kind of over like too much. Um, in her matches this year so but that's my primary question is just the injury issue of, of are you even fit um, because this is an injury that 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 um, she's been suffering from from before the Australian Open so and her results since then have been not great so it's been definitely disappointing um, but yeah I don't know I mean if it's hard to really kind of like slag on a player when they're injured and so that's the thing with her. I'm just like, can you just like not play tennis for a while and like get healthy? That would be nice. <laughs> that would be nice indeed. So Courtney, after we saw each other in Indy Wells, we're both at home this week and we'll be meeting up again in Charleston next week, which means that neither of us are in Miami, which is a pretty common thing among American press. Almost nobody, no American reporters this year, I think, are doing... I think are doing the double of the Wells in Miami, which would seem surprising from the outside because they're the second and third biggest tournaments we have in the country. And so being dedicated tennis writers, you would assume they'd be musts for all of us, but they don't work out that way. I mean, I don't, I've done the double twice in 2012 and 2014 and it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's essentially people not, I guess not everyone has a great sense, especially like players. And I've had agents asking like, why aren't you in Miami? And I was like, well, for us, we're there at least, I was in Indy Wells from the first ball of qualifying to the last ball of the final, pretty much all day, every day from like 11 or before a little before 11 AM to a little after midnight every day for 13 straight days, 14 straight days. That's a lot. It's a lot. And flying cross country and doing that all again with no break. That's rough. Especially when Indy Wells is so much easier than Miami. I mean, on paper, I should be a Miami person. I live on the East Coast. It's a much shorter trip, but it just doesn't work out. The logistics in Miami are headache-inducing, and doing both in general is just tough because you've already seen the players. Yeah. I mean, the sort of the sort of stories we do, which are not match reports, they're just more about big-picture topics and features and profiles. I mean, what am I going to go, especially having Serena in Indy Wells this year, I'm going to go to Miami and talk to her again about things we just talked about or everybody else we just saw. I mean, the only fresh stories for Miami this year is Venus, which has been every year since her boycott started. And uh, I guess Songa was back new this year, like small fees, but relatively small differences and not making the trip worthwhile, especially when Miami has uh, a lot of headaches involved in it. Yeah. So Courtney, does that, that sum up basically why you don't, do the double as well yeah i mean i did the double once in 2011 never did it again i think that everything that you hit on is exactly right i think that it's also for miami i wonder sometimes if it would be if it would be easier if they were switched in the calendar because yeah, yeah. i think that like when you do indian wells you're kind of you know you're doing this two-week masters it's in the chilled out california desert the tournament's so relaxed logistically it's so easy everything is just kind of perfect in India Wells for media. Then you're asked to like go to Miami where it's like getting slapped in the face by like a wet fish. Like you're just <laughs> like everything about it. You're like, why, you know, it's so humid. 
the logistics of getting to site are impossible. Like, it, you know, it's nightmarish. It's physically incredibly taxing. Um, uh, the the layout, the media center being on the third floor, interview room on the first floor is just a, a, a pain. Yeah, opposite sides of the stadium. Too. Yeah, opposite sides. It, it's just, it's a lot. And it becomes really, really difficult. And, you know, if they were reversed, maybe if, like, you went to Miami first, so you were kind of geared up for it. And you yeah. did it when you had a full tank of gas and then did Indian Wells where like being on a half tank or quarter tank, it still would get you through it. Two weeks of Indian Wells might actually work. But as it is, it's like Miami to me when I did it was just so jarring um, and difficult. And uh, and I think that what you said, Ben, about, you know, kind of having masters back to back, like it, I don't think there are a lot of people who end up doing like international reporters tennis reporters who end up doing kind of that back-to-back unless they're doing match reports you know and a couple just never... people yeah a couple people have done it like carol bouchard i know is doing it this year is doing the double yeah and i think she's found it as she her tweets can say fairly jarring transition yeah. i mean it is just it goes from one of the tournaments that wins all the awards for being best organized in india wells and everything to miami which like the layout let's just be clear like there's so the press room itself the where our desks are in the miami studio uh, stadium is actually really nice it's uh it's on the top level, which is fine. You can walk some stairs. Um, but then it's like a little deck out onto the stadium, so it's easy to watch center court. It's not bad. But the interview room is in this, like, basement on the opposite side of the stadium. So when they call an interview, you have to, like, sprint down three or four flights of stairs, like cement stairs that the public uses, too. So they're usually decently crowded. And then run, like, half the perimeter of the stadium to get there. And then a bunch more corridors once you get inside to get to the actual room. And when you talk about in especially for new media, feeling like you're I know Ben feels this way. I know I feel this way that that you want to know what's going on around the grounds at all times that you basically can lose 20 minutes of time just getting to and from an interview room. Time management is a huge, huge part of our jobs. That's that's like the biggest skill. One of the biggest skills you need to do what we do. Right. And it's like you're sitting there and you're looking at match point and you're like, do I sit here or what might be the last game of some epic match? You're like, do I sit here and watch how this match ends or do I run, you know, 15 minutes to a Lissiki interview? Yeah. And you're like, well, I think I'm just going to sit here like this is whatever I'm watching is actually, you know, so that's where it makes a big difference in India Wells the interview room is virtually connected to the press room. Like yeah, it's, it's like, like, it's like a 10 foot <laughs> barrier. Essentially, you walk across a, well, a hallway, essentially. And it's yeah. Else. Once the announcement is made, you're in the room in 30 seconds. Yeah. So it's quite easy. So that makes a big difference. And that's more the norm. Miami one is remarkably bad. Rome is also notorious. Rome is bad, the, yeah. Rome is like the worstest. <laughs> I love you, Rome, but good Christ, are you just the most terribly run tournament ever? And the only, and the other thing that I will mention too about Miami Indian Wells is that weirdly, as much as like Indian Wells is like seen as the fancier, rich people tournament, it's cheaper to cover Indian Wells than it is to cover Miami. They're more because options. The, weirdly, because the hotel, yeah, exactly. You can stay, you know, thirty minutes from the site in Indian Wells and you can find like a pretty cheap hotel for like, you know, less than a hundred bucks a night if you wanted to. And there's also Airbnb options. Miami, you probably are paying 200 bucks a night and you're still like 45 minutes from the tournament. And there's ultra over the bridge and there's ultra going on. The music festival that's concurrent every year takes up, jacks up the rates a lot and 
generally makes the traffic worse and everything. So it's a headache of a tournament. And just in general, so like the press turnout from the American beat writers is really, really thin um, compared to Indian Wells, compared to even Cincinnati and obviously the U.S. Open and other tournaments. Probably even fewer American beat writers because just because of the way they're geographically located. I'm guessing there are more of the, in terms of you and Matt Cronin and Doug Robson, all, and I guess uh, Bill Simons <laughs> better turn out in Stanford than Miami. Oh, the Stanford cool. press room is epic. Yeah. It's like pound for pound. It's not so bad. And it's only it's only because we all live in the Bay Area. Right. Joel, Joel Drucker as well. Right. Uh, Bruce Jenkins. Yeah, it's it's not too shabby. It's a good crew. But then the Miami press room is almost all is mostly populated by locals who are non tennis beat writers who write for uh, Miami Herald and uh, Sun Sentinel and other local papers. They're, they're the main sort of full time report people there and they have a different they have different concerns in how they cover the tournament they're covering it for a non-tennis audience and for most of them even though i guess a few of them do like junior tournaments happen in florida because obviously florida is a pretty big epicenter of tennis so they do some other tennis during the year but for the most part it's their only look so the coverage winds up being very different and the questions wind up being different and everything's just not i guess what it is and that's a big factor as well in terms of the sort of coverage you get of miami which leads to, as we're talking to Jeannie Bouchard and her injury and stuff, Jeannie Bouchard did not wind up doing press after her loss to Malik hyphen Maria um, because there, no one requested her, theoretically. Or maybe there was some mix-up or something. Who knows what happened with the layout and logistics and the walkie-talkies and everything that go around. Ma- uh, she didn't do press. The match was not televised. So we don't have mention of any data of this because, like I said, the Miami press who make up the big numbers there are not tennis beat writers who think it's a big deal necessarily if the number seven seed from Canada women's <laughs> right from Canada there weren't any Canadian reporters there it's actually a little surprising that Canada didn't have anybody there it's a pretty short trip for Canada but I guess yeah, the Canadians I, I guess at the same time Stephanie Miles and Tom Tebbett were both also chose Indian Wells yeah I mean at that point you've already talked to her and like what are they going to do fly all the way to Miami and then yeah I, that's the thing is like these decisions have to be made and I, I, one thing that I will add that I feel like people often overlook when they start kind of like figuring out like why people go in different places is that a lot of us are freelancers mm-hmm. like just because like for example for myself like I'll 90% of what I do is for sportsillustrated.com, but I am a freelancer. I'm technically a freelance writer. So in that capacity, like cost effectiveness of where you go and cover tournaments and what tournaments you do matters. It's yeah. not just like, I like that tournament. I'm going to go. That's it. It, like, it doesn't work out that way. So that's the thing. I mean, with Indian Wells, it's such a cost effective place because it's relatively cheap and you can talk to all the players there when they're in a good mood, by the time they get to Miami, the players are kind of cranky anyway. <laughs> That's true. I have no. noticed that. So Mike Dixon sent a tweet uh, from after Bouchard didn't come in saying, Mike Dixon, who, those of you don't know, is a British reporter, a full-time reporter, I believe, for the Daily Mail, um, who said, so few authentic media at Miami open today that Bouchard didn't do press after loss. Uh, parentheses, we were covering Watson, I guess he says, for the, of the Brits. Uh, that should alarm WTA and ATP. And first of all, it should. I mean, Miami WTA ATP should be aware that the Miami press situation is pretty dire. Um, but going back to the time management situation we talked about, it doesn't always make sense for people. Transcripts just don't appear out of nowhere. I get this. People get this a lot when they're following a term of the post transcripts online. It does take time for somebody to go in and ask questions. I remember there was a night at the U.S. Open, actually, 
it was a night a couple years ago where I want to say Makarova beat Radvanska and Lina beat Yankovic in night sessions. And one of them was on Ash. I think Yankovic Lee was on Ash. And I was the only English speaking reporter to go to any of those four press conferences. Yep. And so without me there, there'd have been no transcript. So transcripts don't appear out of thin air. I do think though. And then it, as far as Mike's tweet goes though, he was asked uh, what he meant by authentic media. And he said, those who are not freeloaders or hobbyists, which I assume is referring to blogger people, um, which I agree less with in this situation. Uh, first of all, if you want uh, a transcript for a press conference you didn't go to, why would you not want more people being media at the tournament? Yep. To increase the odds that somebody goes to Bouchard. Number two, if you're complaining about freeloaders, are you complaining about not getting free quotes from Bouchard for a tra- from a press conference you didn't bother to attend? So, those are my <laughs> thoughts there. <laughs> I, I cannot argue with your logic there. Yeah, I mean, the whole concept of transcripts is an interesting one, and especially when as it comes to bloggers and all that stuff. I mean, I've written about this extensively before. I think I've made my opinions well known about the whole... I mean, I am a blogger. I still consider myself a blogger. I have blogger DNA, and I'm very proud of it because it, to me, doesn't signify, from a semantic point of view... I don't have a negative connotation of what a blogger is or isn't. A blogger is just somebody who has a blog. It doesn't mean that they're good or bad at their job. It There are authentic media that are terrible at their jobs. Yep. And there are bloggers who are great at their jobs. Just labeling one as one thing and the other as the other thing is a complete waste of time and asinine. I mean, they're, just because you are whatever, you have a press card, doesn't mean that you're not a freeloader. There are tons of people, and I know this because... As Ben had mentioned, and I do it as well, Matt Cronin's another one. We go to WTA press conferences all the time. A lot of times, we're not even writing a story off of that player. But we go in there to help, in sometimes, to create a transcript. Something that will eventually then be distributed, we know, to whoever is in that room, or depending on the tournament or the tour, that transcript gets distributed elsewhere. And other people might write about the WTA like based off of those transcripts. All of those things are good for the tour. I don't mind it. I like talking to the players. I'm happy to do it with a transcriptionist nearby, whatever. But it, like a lot of times I'm not writing about that player that day, but I go in and do it. So in terms of like this concept of like, oh yeah, people are freeloaders or not freeloaders or hobbyists, I just don't really think that it matters. I mean, that stuff, everybody in that room on some level is a quote unquote freeloader. We all rely on each other. I mean, to me, I think I've, I've, I said this um, either on the podcast or maybe on a blog post that I wrote on 40 Deuce to start the year. Like, I see the tennis media situation as an ecosystem. It's not a caste system. There are not some people who, like, deserve to be there more than others or, like, the rich can steal from the poor and the poor can't do shit about it. Like, that's not how a healthy... Uh, media situation works. It's an ecosystem. Like bloggers help, like whatever, quote unquote, authentic media. Authentic media, quote unquote, help bloggers. Twitter, like Facebook, like YouTube, all of these different content generators and content providers, people who vine all the time, create gifts. Mm-hmm. All of this, it's all part of how tennis gets covered and we all cooperate and we should all point to each other and be like, hey, that was awesome. Great job, person. And vice versa. 
But when it starts to become like an us versus them thing, I'm like, what, the, what? How? How does that work? That makes no sense. No sense. It's pointless. It's pointless trying to be us versus them, trying to other people who you think are inferior to you somehow. I mean, both of us did start off as bloggers and getting credentialed through blogs. Courtney, you were getting credentialed through 40 Deuce, and I was getting credentialed through Espionation Daily Forehand, whatever, back uh, 2010, 2011, I guess back 2009 even. Um, and before that, for talking about tennis. And yeah, always much harder if we were doing it by ourselves. Yeah. And I think the best sort of bloggers, or people or whatever, can have great effect if they use their things correctly. Like I think through luck or whatever, when I first got into press rooms, I was like taking some like wild swings in press conferences and asking questions that I think a lot of people were afraid to ask otherwise. I remember asking in... Cincinnati in, I guess, 2011, 20, 2011, when uh, Serena pulled out with a, with a injury, if now it's going to go to Kim Kardashian's wedding. And right. I don't I think any that. established media we're going to, we're going to have, you know, we're going to risk asking that. And, but I didn't know any better and was like, why not? And it wound up in pretty much everybody's story the next day. Right. And so it doesn't, it's not like me being there and not having you know, a newspaper with millions in circulation on the name of my credential hurt anybody. I think everyone, unless there's somebody, and there are people in the press room occasionally who are, who do sort of are bad eggs enough to make it worse for people. We do have that in occasional weeks where somebody is a complete, complete disruptor. Yeah. But in general, more questions and more bodies is only good for the sport and to keep tennis relevant. And I also don't think really that unpaid writers are taking jobs away from paid writers. I don't sense that. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But that's not something I see as a really growing problem in the sport. I don't think it's a growing problem in the sport. I think that that's more of an issue of just, like, I think that's a problem within, like, writing. Journalism, yeah. Journal- well, not even just journalism, writing. Yeah. To the extent that there's now free content and all that people want is free content and they don't want to pay for it that, you know, suppresses how writers get paid. And so from a across the board standpoint, I do find an issue. I have an issue with it, but I totally agree. I mean, the more the merrier, like, and people get in there now, once you're in there and once you have the access, it's up to you to do what you're going to do with it. Like you want to be, do you want to contribute or do you want to freeload? And that applies regardless of whether it says blogger on your cap or if it says, you know, journalist for 30 years at highly reputable newspaper. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's, you know, and, and so, yeah, I just find it very weird to make that we're still doing this. Like this whole dust up happened in 2011 in Miami when I was there. Yeah. Explain explain the click clack. (laughs) The click clack. It was 2011 in Miami and I was there and I was, this was before I was with Sports Illustrated. So I was just with 40 Deuce and there was another tennis writer who was in that room, who referred to bloggers as fans with typewriters. And a bunch of other journalists like kind of like jumped on board and was like, yeah, which I was like, first of all, not entirely creative. Secondly, <laughs> so what? Like, that's a bad thing, a fan with typewriters? Because like I've seen some of the, the um, behavior in that press room. I've seen when people cheer. I've seen that thing. I've heard the things that you know, reporters mutter under their breath. Um, everyone in that freaking room is a fan with a typewriter. Everyone has a rooting interest. Like, let's not pretend that's not the case. 
So again, people are throwing out words and they're very, very empty. They don't actually signify anything. But yeah, so I took issue with it. And so my hashtag click clack has always been my blogger, like fist in the air. Rallying um, cry. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you're right. I am a fan with a typewriter. And that's sometimes that's a bad thing if I use that in a, if I don't kind of keep all of that in perspective. But at least within my career, it's been a good thing because I love this sport. I will watch a 4 a.m. stream of a third round match in Osaka, not because anybody's asking me to do it, because I like it. And at the end of the day, that probably makes me better at my job than otherwise. And that's pretty good. And that's okay. Having youthful enthusiasm is only a good thing. And also, young people, fans, whatever, don't use typewriters. (laughs) What does that even mean? A typewriter's great. I guess so, but it makes it really hard to tweet off of. Well, this is true. You know that there's actually an app that has been developed by Tom Hanks, I want to say. Okay. That's on the iPad and the iPhone that is literally a typewriter. Like a typewriter, like like keyboard. Yeah, the whole thing. And I'm like, and it's just weird because I was like, Tom Hanks developed an app (laughs) for a typewriter (laughs) on an iPhone? Our world is weird. Our world is weird. But yeah, all, all that is to say, just, yeah. Just what you the work you do <sighs> and the amount of value add has nothing to do with where you came from or what and the, your la- status and the label is you have and the label or whatever that people ascribe to you. Right. I mean, like basic things like um, I can give exam. I don't feel like the need to give examples, but like, for example, Ricky Diamond was in is a blogger by all definitions, was in Miami last year and was the only person journalistically at all who watched the Tomic Tank. Yep. It was 28 minutes. He, he His style is he goes out and watches like a ton of matches and isn't it doesn't do many press conferences, questions, type things. But he's there like being eyes on the ground that other people don't have the time or energy to do. And so when Tomic tanks, he's the one who has like the only account of it. Having more yeah. bodies there is just better. So more eyes. I mean, that, isn't inclusiveness. That, yeah. And isn't that basically real life Twitter? Like that's yeah. what Twitter has allowed why it's so great specifically for tennis because there is so much tennis happening all over the globe in all time zones a single person can't see it all but like thanks to twitter we kind of feel like we do right like you kind of are like you know you it's almost like you get this little apb like shit going down at the houston challenger and you're like oh shit like you know and, and you pull it up and that's great and again that's why i feel like twitter is actually a really good model for kind of news and news coverage because it is collective right. it is everyone you know like that D- the tennis translations website that's yeah. great that is such a value add because those are things that like and and we're happy at least i am to you know cite to them send traffic their way sure. to continue to encourage that that sort of work being done and that's what you mean by an ecosystem i'm not going to sit there and just take from them and pretend they don't exist Right. And that's kind of the weird thing about this whole like us versus them fans with typewriters, authentic, inauthentic freeloader discussion is like, I don't understand how you can say that and then follow all of these freeloaders and hobbyists who effectively give you news for free. And you just ignore them. (laughs) No, totally. Especially when people can do stories that other people don't notice, don't see. Like you mentioned the Dallas Challenger with Molchanov or whatever. Right. Those things matter. I mean, like those things, and by the way, Molchanov has been pulling out of tournaments recently. 
Interesting. Possibly, as has Jimmy Wang. Ah. Uh, both of them were the great work that Ian Dorward did over at Sport DW, outlining potential alarms there. Maybe that made something actionable. Right. So we'll see. So things can happen, and different things people do, but especially when it's more on the fringes, can be enormously valuable so like today i didn't see that janowitz match but apparently he got into it with carlos bernardis and i didn't see it but i saw some twitter discussion about it and people were like what's happened what did he get fined will the atp ever announce that he got he got fined and i wasn't part of the discussion but i shot an email to atp being like hey guys hearings this happened like what's the situation are you going to issue issue a fine i'm waiting to hear back but like yeah like this is kind of how it should work so, in a lot of ways. So what we're saying is more the know. merrier. Everybody's awesome. No need to begrudge anybody anything. Just we're all better for each other's presence for the most part. So yay tennis. Yay people. It's a big sandbox. Get in. Right. Yay sand. <laughs> <laughs> all these things. Obviously. <laughs> so thank you all for listening. No matter who you are. As always, you can follow along with us when you're not listening by following us on Facebook or liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at underscore NCR, sorry, no, at NCR underscore tennis. You can subscribe to us on whatever your platform of podcasting may be, whether it's iTunes or whatever app. And if it is iTunes, you can leave us reviews in the iTunes store, which we always appreciate hearing feedback and stuff there and we also have our listener feedback survey uh, which has gotten a bunch of great responses from winding down but it's going well uh, so if you want that has been posted on our twitter and our facebook at various times you can find it there uh let's finish off as per usual with a little rant rave segment courtney do you have anything any more thoughts to share it's been a very sharing episode but i feel like you probably have more in you somewhere so, so much more so much more um yeah i do um, I got into a really interesting and very fun kind of late night Twitter conversation uh, the other night with Jason Hurley Tennis on Twitter at Hurley Tennis and um, another tweeter whose Twitter handle is Frithelvy in from <laughs> Brisbane, Australia. Uh, Frith uh, apparently is the name on the account. And we all kind of realized that we were part of like a single generation where 90s kids were, gener- were Gen Xers. Um, and we were just talking about music all night, and um, which was really, really fun and very nostalgic. But it did, the whole conversation kind of led me back to an album that I hadn't listened to in probably five, six, maybe seven years um, that I used to love, like love, like listen to it all the time on repeat. I know every single like sigh, music cue, clap, um, different pops on the microphone and on the mandolin. Anyways. But and that album is Ten Thousand Maniacs MTV Unplugged. Good album. I have such that. a good album. Such a freaking good album, you guys. Like, and I've just been listening to it nonstop ever since that conversation. I was wondering what um, it was gonna be when you said mandolin, by the way. I know, yeah. So there's a mandolin in there, and I just remembered two things about the album. Not only is the album amazing, and I love Ten Thousand Maniacs. I love Natalie Merchant in my tribe. Phenomenal album, but it wasn't just that the album is so great because it's like the acoustic versions of all those songs, but the production value is really nice. But also if you can pull up the video, which I actually went on YouTube and couldn't find any like, um, like a full length, um, 
video of their unplugged set. It's so cool. I actually have it on VHS, <laughs> um, which I bought back in the time, but I haven't plugged that in because I don't have a VHS player anymore. Oh, no. I know. I should get that transferred to DVD. Um, I'll bring but, a, I'll bring our VHS player to Charleston if you need me to. There you go. There you go. But um, but a yeah, VCR. if you can find yeah, if you can find a VCR or if you can find those clips of that set um, of the MTV Unplugged, Ten Thousand Maniacs, it's so worth it. Everything about it is just musically wonderful and beautiful. And yeah, I don't know. I just I just love sometimes like rediscovering albums that like you loved that you just that just kind of got lost in the shuffle somehow so 10,000 maniacs mtv unplugged if you haven't listened to it do it and then also i will always say this make sure you buy it don't be doing that illegal stuff kids (laughs) if the album is good like if you genuinely like it if you want to try it and not pay for it fine but if you genuinely like man this album made my life better you should probably just throw down the five to ten bucks and buy it because 10,000 Maniacs should be rewarded. And Lord knows those MTV Unplugged producers could probably use the royalties at this point. Um, Most deaf. I, my, first of all, my favorite track on that for me would have to be Because of the Night. I think that's spectacular. Um, I don't know about you. Do you have one? No, I do. Um, what's the Matter Here? Her okay. rendition of What's the Matter Here on there um, is just wonderful. And also Candy Everyone Wants, but that's like my favorite song. But, um, yeah, no, but because the night is also very good, it. But the other songs are just really rich and really well done. Nicely done. My rant is actually similar. My rave, I should say, um, because I saw this conversation you were having. I butted in quickly, and you shooed me out of it, which is fine. But it got me in a similar sort of '90s YouTube hole. Of there are these videos on YouTube that count down the best songs of each year. Have you seen these? And they'll be like, some they vary, different people do different years, so they're not really, there's any uniformity there, which I would like. I watched from like 1990 to like 2003, these countdown. I'm guessing they're based on the Billboard Top 40s, and it's like a 30 second, 20 second clip of each song. And as a way, watch them in order, it's a pretty cool way to see like music evolve slowly and how things sort of fit into each other, how there is a continuum of sounds and trends and production and what's popular when and whatnot. And it's interesting to see like the first time that like Cheryl Crow pops up on the playlist and then becomes a more fixture or the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or Britney Spears or even something like Matchbox 20 or Hootie or whatever. I don't know. It's, it was a very cool way. I'm someone who likes music being put in order at Eurovision. I thought it was cool. So that's my recommendation for everybody in a very similar vein. Those things are night neat, and they're just good background music. And sometimes you'll find things you totally forgot, or you maybe even never even heard. You're like, oh, that's interesting. That song by London Beat or whatever. So, those are, that's my very similar, very similar rave. Similar-ish. Similar-ish. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Ten Thousand Maniacs Unplugged was on there because the night mm-hmm. was on one of the top 40s for the year. I know. I know it was that was a massive hit. I mean, that was that was one that went on radio from that thing. Yeah, exactly. Which is like, yeah, I'll just be that asshole. Which like <laughs> it happened, and you're just like, I've been listening to Ten Thousand Maniacs for years, and like I'm the weirdo kid that listens to Ten Thousand Maniacs and like absolutely adores Natalie Merchant and her totally quirky. I mean, she was twee before there was twee, and like, and now all you little jocks are now listening to Because of the Night, and you think you know, you don't even know that it's a cover. <laughs> Like, fuck all of you guys. 
yeah. So that just brought me right back to 90s high school. There you go. Well, thank you for that, Venom. Um, I will say that, though, like, people knew 10,000 Maniacs before that, right? Like, Jealousy, Carnival, those were songs. That's not 10,000 Maniacs. That's Natalie Merchant. Is it? Yes. Yeah. Okay, what's the 10,000? 10, okay. And Natalie Merchant, Merchant was after. Like, she spun right, right, off right, right, after right. all of this. Right. So... Remember, okay, well, they had some other big song, though, right? Before no. they unplugged? They didn't? Nope. And how'd they get the unplugged? Because they were like an alternative, like if you watched 120 Minutes on MTV, like they were on there all the time. They were like an alternative band that everybody was kind of universally adored, but they didn't have like a breakout radio hit except for alternative radio, which would be Candy Everyone Wants, Hey Jack Kerouac, What's the Matter Here? Not even Stockton Gala Days, I don't think, went mainstream. But I mean, it wasn't like they were massive. And you have to remember, and this is something that why I kind of really loved the 90s as opposed to kind of the where music is now is that it wasn't because you had more segmentation with respect to radio so you did have an actual alternative station and that alternative station would like for two hours play the extra alternative music like you know like from 10 to midnight or something like that now everything's kind of mashed up because all music kind of sounds alike you know like you can get like i don't know imagine dragons next to pa- going into a passenger song, going into Taylor Swift, going into Kings of Leon. Yeah. Whereas back in the day, like those would be four different radio stations. Yeah, radio's so... really gone downhill in terms of like finding something that ever that you can actually like make your own, but it's really niche. Right. Yeah. That's not like era based, right? Like when we were in Indian Wells, like we would listen to K Des, K Desert, <laughs> which was like oldies, like not oldies, 80s, but like yeah. class yeah, eighties and kind of classic rock. That was great, but that was eighties classic rock as a genre. Now I think that like pop is like way too massive of a genre and um, it's just harder. So then, so back in the day, like you could have a 10,000 maniacs who a pop station wouldn't know, but like an alternative station would play all the time. And which is why you had goth kids and jock kids. And now all that gets jumbled up a little bit more. So I was like the alternative kid. Uh, but, and so I listened to that station, but so they were big to me, but like my friends who played sports, they would never have known who 10,000 Maniacs were. It would really seem like we're setting up for 10,000 Maniacs outro, but we're not. Courtney, can you explain your outro nominee for us, please? Well, when we were talking about freeloaders and authenticity and hobbyists, a great hobby is Legos. <laughs> And one of the things that one of the the song that did come to mind when Ben was kind of talking about, you know, it's all kind of it's team coverage, even though we're all individuals and we all do our own thing. But, you know, if everybody works real hard and, you know, does things right, then as a team of tennis fans, hobbyists, uh, freeloaders, authentics, et cetera, we can kind of create this great ecosystem of coverage. So with that in mind, everything is awesome the Lego movie song that should have won awards, both the movie and the song. Thank you very much to you and Sarah. And Lonely Island. And Lonely Island. I just, it would have been so cool to have those people the Oscar winners. I know. Oh my gosh. If Tegan and Sarah won an Oscar, uh, I would actually stop rooting on the Oscars. It'd be pretty it's like justice was done. Like imagine if he had won that Oscar, I think Andy Samberg would have a theoretical EGOT shot one day. Oh, for sure. He really would. For sure. 
So that's his only way in on the Oscar because he's not getting it for acting. <laughs> Maybe he bless could... him. I love Andy Samberg, but let's be real. <laughs> no. I hope it. I hope it doesn't go like serious drama at any point. I hope... Yeah, if he goes Adam Sandler, that's gonna be like does like Punch Drunk Love or whatever. I'm like, no, stop it. Although Will Forte in Nebraska, I thought was pretty good. Yeah, he was okay. There was also who am I thinking? Jim Carrey, Eternal Sunshine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that's a good role. Yeah, comedians going dark, and even like Steve Carell just got an Oscar nomination. It's not even comedians going dark. Comedians are dark. It's true. It's just you let them now, like, not have to make you laugh, and you let now you're like let the demons loose. Exactly. I can't. I don't think Andy Samberg's ever done anything almost even remotely dark though. So it could be scary to see that finally come out. He has. He has? There's a movie that he did with... I mean, he did a movie with Rashida Jones called Jesse and Celeste. Okay. Where he plays like a total... It's not a comedic role at all. So there is there is something on the Sandberg CV okay. that suggests that he doesn't have to ham it up. Okay. Well, in the meantime, we'll take him at his awesomeness on the vocals here. Thank you guys for being awesome. We will see you next time as we get closer and closer to 100. We promise. Bye, guys. Awesome. Everything is awesome. Step to mud, got new brown shoes. Awesome to win and it's awesome to lose. Awesome to lose.